0: Wisconsin is a nice little town.
1: Uh, At one time, though, we did have more bars in Oregon than churches.
0: Kids might sneak out to the big city, big city being Madison. But in 1970, on Saturday night, the place to go here was the brand new eight-lane Oregon Bowl.
1: And there were those curved seats and Mostly, um, mostly I would say, the women on couples' leave um, kind of sat in those circular things. And the men stood behind, uh, usually drinking a beer.
0: This is Arlene Ace. She and her husband, Daryl, still live in Oregon. They used to bowl together on couples' night.
1: Yeah, it was dim, dim in the bar and um, the bowling alley.
0: That's where they would hang out and drink beers with Suzanne and Vern Stordock.
1: Oh, it it was, uh, oh, the bowling alley was full all the time. Yeah, that was the social place.
0: Including the night Suzanne confessed to killing Vern. On a cold, snowy night, everyone went out for a little fun and everyone drank. But it took a lot of drinks for someone to call you drunk in this part of Wisconsin. You didn't stay at the bowling alley all night either. Arlene says the fun thing to do was to drive to the boonies to go dancing in Peoli.
1: The only reason we were at the sportsman's bar was that it was snowing. It was a a wintry, heavily snowing night.
0: Maybe this night would have turned out differently, she says, if the roads weren't slippery. As it was after bowling and beers, Vern and Suzanne went on to Jay and Ann's bar. Vern's buddy was the bartender. He poured beer and brandy for Vern and made cocktails for Suzanne. Peppermint schnapps and 7-Up. That was a new recipe for the bartender. Then on to the Sportsman's Bar. That's where Arlene Ace ran into them again.
1: Um, The Sportsman's, um, it was a place where townspeople could go in the back door and
0: did. A place where farmers would wear overalls, more casual, a last stop of the night.
1: windows, it seemed to me, were always, you know, kind of grubby looking. Of course, it was winter.
0: Neither Vern nor Suzanne wanted to drive the new Stordock station wagon after all of that. So the Aces helped out, driving them to the grand old house on the corner. Then at 1.20 in the morning, some other friends picked the Aces up. Their night was ending, too. Ten minutes later, another car came. A shaggy-haired figure got out of the passenger side and walked across the lawn, past the front porch, and around the back side of the house. And for a few more minutes, all was quiet outside that house. I'm Molly Peterson. Welcome to Manslaughter. I don't know. That was a weird answer, especially since Suzanne Stordock had just called the county sheriff at home to tell him that she had shot her husband, that she was the perpetrator. But at the same time there was a third person in that house, David, Suzanne's son.
2: I first met David in the early 60s, right after my uncle Vernie started this torrid affair with Suzanne.
0: This is Dorothy Marsick.
2: Suzanne had three children. Donna, David, and Danny.
0: David was that shaggy-haired boy. And when the gunshot rang out, he was the only other person in the house. That night, he told the cops, both Vern and Suzanne were drunk.
3: At this time, both parents are under the influence, in David's opinion. His mother being the more inebriated of the two.
0: And David would know. In Madison earlier that night, he and his friends got a hippie to buy beer for them. That's what he told the cops. And he told a court that his girlfriend dropped him off at his house after 1 a.m.
3: David stated that he called his girlfriend at 1.30 to tell her he was home, and then he went to bed. After he got into bed, he heard his parents fighting downstairs. David then heard them come upstairs where they were still fighting.
0: Years later, David told Dorothy about that night. According to her, this is the story he told.
4: The night it happened, I was asleep in my room down the hall. Um, Donna was away at school in New York, and my younger brother, Danny, was staying with a relative in Madison. They were yelling, and it woke me up, um, arguing.
5: You're hurting me.
4: I just heard her say something about he burned her with a cigarette, and Vern was shouting back,
0: That cigarette burn, the Dane County Sheriff saw it when Suzanne was at the jail. He said it looked like somebody had taken the head of a lighted cigarette and put it out on her back.
4: Vern was yelling, so shoot me. I was laying there in my warm bed under the covers, so tired, and I just couldn't pull myself up to go stop their fight, which is what I usually did, David the mediator, but I just decided to go back to sleep. A little later, I heard a loud bang. And then my mother was knocking on my door.
1: I shot Vern.
4: I got out of bed and let her in the room and asked her where, leg, arm, or what? The head. I ran fast to their room and saw blood and brains everywhere. Vern was on the floor, all bloodied, with this gun lying next to him, and it looked like he'd been shot straight on in the face.
0: Investigators later found two sets of fingerprints on the gun.
4: I guess it was just instinct from all the times i have been hunting, but I picked up the rifle to see if it was still loaded, and the spent shell popped out. This couldn't be happening, I thought, and I threw the gun down.
0: Cops on scene, they saw that David was emotional. Not long after they arrived, he began to cry and hammer against the door with his fists. According to the police, David cried and cried. When Dorothy Marsick started looking into her Uncle Vern's death, she tracked down the people who had investigated the shooting first, police officers from Oregon who were inside the house that night in 1970.
2: And that included Kenneth Buck Pledger. He'd retired, but when I called him, he was still living in Oregon, Wisconsin.
6: Yeah, there
7: was a lot of of strange things that happened uh, in my mind about that, but just a lot of strange things.
0: Strange from the get-go. Evidence that didn't add up, that could matter in the long run. The sheriff of Dane County, Jack Leslie, examined Suzanne after the shooting.
8: I saw Mrs. Stordock. She was brought into my private office by Lieutenant Kissow.
0: In a hearing later that year, Sheriff Leslie told the district attorney that in that room, he made a gruesome discovery.
8: I found a piece of flesh in the front of her hair. That seemed awful strange
0: to me. Officer Ken Pledger. If she
7: had shot him from the doorway, why she would have tissue in her hair. As I remember right, she had, like, it wasn't just one piece. It was like two or three or four pieces of tissue in her hair.
0: It wasn't just the evidence on Suzanne. Pledger recalled odd details about the scene of the crime itself. Like, he said it was clear what direction the bullet came from. The trajectory.
7: When you're dealing with a rifle, you've got to either aim the rifle or you've got to be, you you, you can't can't just kind of point and shoot at somebody's apple, unless your gun is almost right next to them.
0: But where the blood actually splattered, on the bed, on the wall, on the dresser, it didn't match up with where Suzanne said she was, which was close enough to have some of Vern's brain in her hair
7: on the weapon, and I don't remember that there was that.
0: Suzanne confessed, but the physical evidence was telling a different story, one where she was close to Vern when he died, but the gun was not. And Suzanne didn't make sense as the shooter for another good reason. Nobody remembers her being any good with guns. And
7: in person, inexperienced with firearms, it just seemed like it was not logical to, to do that, you know, and... My understanding of it was she didn't do a lot of shooting and didn't have a lot of knowledge about guns. And that was certainly the most complicated gun that was there to use because it was a bolt-action gun.
0: Complicated and, given its location, an unlikely choice.
7: It was the top gun on the gun rack. Very difficult to
0: reach. Police reports and diagrams show that top rack was more than six and a half feet off the ground. In front of it was a cabinet that stuck out almost two feet
7: she had to get up on something to get high enough to reach that gun to pick it off the gun
0: rack. That's because Suzanne was five foot three.
7: There was either four or five guns on a wall rack. The one that was missing was from the very top. It would have been, you would have needed something to get on there for her to get on and even get to that rifle.
0: The rifle was a Mauser, a type originally made for German special forces in the 19th century as popular with big game hunters on safari in Africa as it became with Midwestern Americans out for a shoot. The Mauser requires a specific kind of bullet.
7: And there was a drawer with ammunition in it, as I remember, and uh, there was several different kinds of ammunition in there, but whoever took the gun also took bullets out of the ammunition box and had to know which ammunition box to take it out and put it into that gun. And so it had to be somebody with some, I felt, with some knowledge
8: of that firearm.
0: That was the view of a cop on the scene. But I wanted to check with someone independent who hadn't been there that night. Sarah Kalin, a 22-year veteran of law enforcement. She started as a kind of Ken Pleasure herself.
5: I spent 10 years as a patrol officer and as a sex crimes detective.
0: Learning her way around a crime scene firsthand. Then she taught other officers how to do what she did.
5: I went through and taught at both the state and uh, federal academy levels. And she went back to school herself. Began researching uh, criminal behavior, criminal psychology, primarily with a concentration in serial sexual predators and serial killers.
0: Now she's a cold case homicide investigator.
5: I work generally as a consultant, uh, as a civilian consultant, with cold case investigative groups uh, or with departments directly.
0: Kalen made another good point about the Mauser rifle.
5: The gun itself is one that requires a specific level of skill and practice in order to operate effectively. It is not like picking up a semi-automatic pistol and just sort of Pointing and, and, and pressing the trigger and hoping for the best. There, is, there are mechanics involved with the loading of the gun, with the, you know, the, the bolt action itself, which is what places the firing pin in, in, in the position to fire, and um, pressing the trigger and how you're holding it. All of that, Kaylin
0: says, describes someone who's been trained on a Mauser, but it doesn't describe Suzanne.
5: Right. Well, every scenario that's been used to explain Suzanne as being the shooter of that particular weapon on that particular scene crumbles upon inspection, right? So a small person, male or female, could not fire a bolt-action rifle from hip level, which is one of the things that they said about it. It's literally physically impossible. So the idea that somebody who had never been experienced with, with any weapon, never mind that one in particular, would choose it out of a selection of much easier guns to operate, um, load it correctly, fire it not only correctly, but accurately, and do so from the position that they try to claim that Suzanne did, it's, it, just doesn't, it, it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny.
0: And just one bullet pulled from the ammunition box says something about the shooter, too.
5: I've been around guns now, you know, for 25 years, and I'm not entirely confident that I could pick one up sight unseen and fire off one single shot and and have a successful great headshot with it. The shooter would have had to have had a degree of confidence in their own capabilities to think that one round would be sufficient. But you would still think that if you were not completely positive that you were a really good shot with this particular Mauser, you would have at least had a handful of ammo, you know, extra ammo in the pocket or or loaded into the weapon if it took it. Instead, what we have here is one round missing from the box of ammo, one round loaded in, and then one cartridge, one spent cartridge ejected from the weapon minutes after the shooting but admittedly by David
0: again David there were just two people in that grand house who knew their way around a rifle that well Vern and David looking at the police report and looking at the inventory of guns in that house there was a 22 there was a there were a couple 22s there was a 38 um, there were revolvers there were all kinds of other guns you know, wouldn't any of those be quite likely for someone to pick?
5: Any one of them would have been certainly much easier to use if you didn't know what you were doing. Statistically, more people are killed by 22 bullets than any other round. The 22 is the smallest of the the, sort of the pistol rounds, essentially. And part of the reason for this is that the smaller framed guns and the ones with much less kick, like something that fires a twenty-two, are easier to handle. There was no shortage of weapons that if she thought she was just gonna grab something and fire off at him in a fit of rage, or in a fit of protecting herself, as she, you know, at some points claimed. Um, the, you know, climbing to the top of the cabinet to get the most difficult, heaviest gun in the house just Doesn't add
7: up. Personally, I never believed that she did it.
0: That's because Officer Ken Pledger says someone else had more of a reason to grab the Mauser first.
7: And uh, that gun was, that rifle that was used was his deer rifle, his being David's.
0: David Briggs, Suzanne's son. Hey, it's Molly Peterson, and I love to cook. But if you ask people I know, they'll tell you that sometimes that means multi-hour, super complicated projects. On a weeknight, after a full day's work, forget about it. I get faint before I get any food. I tried HelloFresh. They send you everything, including a recipe and a plan and the ingredients, so you don't have to think too hard. You can just start chopping. 10 to 20-minute meals, low-prep recipes. It's meant for a busy schedule, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. I have a whole pasta sauce thing I started making. It takes hours and hours and hours. But HelloFresh's Cavatappi beef ragu is legit, and it takes half an hour. The pork taquitos were good, too. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Manslaughter12 and use code Manslaughter12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's America's number one meal kit. That's HelloFresh.com slash Manslaughter12 and use code Manslaughter12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. The Mauser rifle is a beloved hunting gun in Wisconsin and precious, so precious that last year the Madison Police Department made headlines when it cracked another cold case a theft of a Mauser from almost 50 years ago. It's a man's weapon. And the reason Officer Ken Pledger doesn't think Suzanne shot her husband is because a Mauser from the Oregon house was used to shoot Vern. Vern Stordock treated David like a son. In Wisconsin, that meant teaching him how to shoot a gun. All of his guns. They went to shooting ranges. They went hunting, mostly for deer. The Mauser bolt action was a gift from some of Vern's in-laws, it would have come in handy on those trips, says veteran investigator Sarah Kalin.
5: Well, according to a number of witnesses and David himself, it was a gun that he was comfortable with, that he had experience training and training in handling, and had had success with hunting prior to this. So it was a gun he was comfortable with. Yeah, just psychologically. In a spur of the moment incident, when you think you're protecting somebody, you are going to grab the one that you are the most comfortable with.
0: Police, check this out. None of the store friends and neighbors had ever seen Suzanne hold a weapon or talk about one. David, though, he was a skilled hunter. When Dorothy Marsick retraced the work of the cops, she re-interviewed their witnesses, people who had suspicions about what went down from the beginning. Like David Strode, who had been friends with Suzanne's son.
6: I don't think she shot. I think... Was David Burks.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what makes you think that?
6: Because she was so
8: frail, and so she was. She just
6: doesn't seem the kind of person that could lift a gun.
0: And Suzanne's brother, he didn't believe Suzanne's confession either.
6: She uh, said that she had gone downstairs and got this rifle off the gun rack down in the living room. She came up and she just raised. Gun up and shot him. Well, that didn't happen, so, so I knew she was to me.
0: I should say here a few things. Dorothy Marsick tracked down Suzanne's brother. He's still alive. They talked a half a dozen times. He's older now, in his 80s. We're going to call him Franklin. That's not his name, to protect his privacy, and the voice you're hearing is an actor. Driven by doubt about his sister's story, Franklin went to the Oregon mansion the day after Vern died.
6: I went in the house, and I went upstairs where it happened. And right straight across from their bedroom was uh, another bedroom, which was uh, Daniel's.
0: Daniel, that's Danny, Suzanne's younger son. The boy was at a sleepover that night, so he wasn't in the house.
6: And what i done is I took a pencil, and I stuck it in the headboard and the bullet hole in the wall. And I walked over there in that room there, and I had to step over, over the seat of that chair to get into the bedroom. And uh, I just laid my hand down across those pants and held my finger out there. I was looking right straight into that pencil. So that's where the shot was fired from.
0: From Daniel's bedroom. And again, he wasn't there. David was in a room nearby. He claimed to lay sleeping even after one shot echoed through the house.
6: Now, my sister said after it had happened, she went down and and woke David up. The hall in the upper stairs there was probably maybe 20 feet long. And it was, uh, I think it was uh, an 8mm rifle he was shot with. But it don't make that much difference because, you know, he would have not been able to sleep. Uh, after a rifle shot that far from his bedroom.
0: Something else stuck out to Franklin, an odd detail in David's own bedroom. David's immaculate bed. Tucked in, square, not what you'd expect from a shaggy teenage boy.
6: Well, when the cops showed up, uh, they, they took her right straight out of the house so nothing had been touched, and his bed was perfectly made.
0: David claimed he had been asleep and pulled out of bed by his mother. But everything was tucked in and square like he had never been under the covers. David told a lot of inconsistent, unverified, and hard-to-prove stories. To friends. To family. His girlfriend said he got home at one time. He said another. In court, David testified that he was asleep in bed on top of the covers on a freezing Wisconsin night. One time, he said he didn't know where the ammunition was kept. Another time, he did.
5: I can't understand, I really can't wrap my mind around how any investigator wouldn't make both of the only people in the home at the time that somebody was shot suspects to a, to a pretty significant degree.
0: But if David set up in the dark in his younger brother's room with a view to the master bedroom, he could have ambushed Vern Stordock easily.
5: There are two ways probably to look at it, right? So it depends on the motivation of the shooter.
0: That's what investigator Sarah Kalin thinks.
5: If the shooter was acting in a way where they were scared of the situation or there was, you know, this big fight going on in the other room, setting up far away with a rifle, particularly if you're skilled at using that rifle, allows you to to intervene essentially to to shoot the primary aggressor. Um, while remaining at a safe distance, and while having a chance to do it without the offender, if that's what you're doing, um, know that you're coming, essentially. It's like not, you know, not jumping into the middle of a physical fight or the middle of a dispute. By doing it from a distance, that person who is engaging is, is able to feel safer themselves. Now, the flip of that, if this is a premeditated, a planned out situation, it allows for the shooter to essentially ambush So in this case, they set up from a distance and the person that they're going to shoot never has a chance to act in self-defense.
0: Even with all of this, even with all of these flags, the Dane County Sheriff's Department apparently dropped David as a suspect six months after Vern's death. That's when the district attorney's office sent around a memo listing what questions investigators should be asking of witnesses, how long they knew Vern and Suzanne how they had seen Suzanne behave, how the store docs looked, how they talked to each other, how they talked about each other. Was Suzanne acting, you know, sane? Were they drunk? How drunk? What kind of a night out did the adults have? None of that about David. All of it about Suzanne and Vern, a way to get ready for a claim of self-defense that Suzanne's lawyers could argue if insanity didn't stick. Experts now say any competent police officer would have had David in their sights from the beginning. The district attorney didn't completely drop the ball. A month after the shooting, the DA put David on the stand in a preliminary hearing. His last question seemed to take care of everything.
4: You didn't shoot your father, did you? No, I didn't.
2: And the next day... The district attorney was quoted in the Capital Times as saying that David answered that last question in such a hateful manner, he had to be telling the truth. I guess I missed that show on Law & Order where the prosecutor assesses someone's guilt by the tone of his voice. Maybe they call it the modulation defense. And that was that.
0: David's mother went off to the hospital to recover. Even so, everyone branded her a killer. David was free to move forward, sort of.
8: Uh, there was a drastic change in David when, after the incident happened. Yeah, there was a there was a drastic change.
0: That's Gary Grassman, a friend of David's from that time. Another friend, Kim Derry, said basically the same thing.
8: Destroyed it. It pretty much destroyed his life, just bearing the brunt of that. He got to be, he lost a lot of his smile and his comedy... And his sense of humor, and became more of a dark person. He got a lot more uh, sullen and uh, quiet, and I guess you would say dark.
0: Gary Grassman went on a camping trip in 1972 with David. Two guys in their twenties on the open road.
8: That was. I remember we were we were camping with our motorcycles on the way down there. And uh, we got in some heavy conversation.
0: Gary found out the real reason that his friend had changed. Something was closing in on David.
8: During that trip, he confessed to me that he was the, uh, the trigger on the gun.
0: A confession. A nagging conscience years after the fact. A heavy burden. Sometime in that decade, David's uncle Franklin recalled a similar conversation.
6: and visited me I lived in Vegas at the time David came out to visit me and, and I sat on the porch and I accused him of this and I said deny it and he wouldn't he wouldn't admit it he wouldn't deny it I well, she didn't shoot him that was that was that simple I'm quite sure David did
0: David's burden may have been growing for some time, maybe even since the night of Vern's murder. That night, all of the police reports describe Suzanne as calm and David as upset.
3: From the time of our arrival at the Sturdock residence, David was in a highly emotional state, very nervous. After he was informed that Mr. Sturdock had expired, he became very nervous. He chain-smoked cigarettes, could not quite sit still, would walk from the kitchen to the front room several times. Oh, my God.
0: Oh, my God. Officer Ken Pledger noticed he asked Suzanne that night whether David was involved in Vern's killing in any way. In his police report, he wrote that she put her hand over her mouth and just stood looking at him for a few seconds. I don't know, but I don't think I'd better say anything more to you at this time. None of this sat right with Dorothy Marsick. As she retraced the old investigation, Vern's niece piled up the old police reports and evidence. She brought it all to the Dane County Sheriff's Office and a detective named Tim Blank. They met in a room filled with stuffed toys.
2: Detective Blank told me they used the room to meet with the families of the accused or the victims. I thanked them for sending me the forensic files, which turned out to be the most vital information I had on the murder.
0: Blank was there with a couple of other officers. They talked about the problems with the investigation, the red flags, the questions that now sat on Dorothy's heart.
9: Um, A lot of things were strange, and you know, right off the bat, this happened seven years before I was born. So, um, a lot of what I see, you know, through the lens of how we would conduct an investigation today is quite a bit different. Um, A case like that would still take probably a few weeks for us to investigate even now. Um, But I noticed, you know, I go through the reports with kind of a fine tooth comb and I notice some, for example, I remember reading there was an inconsistency between the deputy that took the telephone call uh, from Suzanne saying, I believe she said my husband's been shot uh, versus the phone call to Sheriff Leslie said I've shot my husband. It's a minor detail, but it's something we would need to clarify. I remember noticing in uh, deputy pledger's report um, you know, he describes a scene where um, David is very concerned and nervous and flipping through magazines and can't concentrate on what's going on. And Suzanne's just kind of making some phone calls and pretty relaxed. And that's just very unusual when someone's been shot in your house. That, to me, seems like uh, a case that needs more digging. You know, if if I've got somebody who says they've never handled a firearm before... I'm going to start asking why did they select that particular firearm? Then, because as I recall, there was more than one gun on that rack. So, I'm you know I'm curious as to why why you know our shooter chose that gun, especially someone that's never handled one before in their life. So, I'm going to want to know why that gun was picked to the exclusion of all others, especially you know was there one that was more in reach? Because if you're having a psychotic break, you're not going to go to the hassle. I wouldn't think of selecting any specific gun. You're going to grab the first one you see.
0: When they met in that room, one of the detectives told Dorothy that her evidence was strong enough to reopen a case, a murder case, against David. Detective Tim Blank says it never hurts to take another look at a case.
9: And just because somebody's already been convicted doesn't mean we got got it right the first time. Maybe we do need to go back. So, yeah, I would have been open to uh, reinvestigating the case. We all agreed the case would, under today's standards, this case was not well done. Um, In 1970, maybe they did a pretty good job. I don't know, but in 2020, it's just not what we would consider an acceptable case.
0: What Dorothy heard from the detectives was that her suspicions were founded, that they would have meant something at the right time. It was overwhelming.
2: When I went to the police station in 2015, I met with three detectives, and they told me when they went over the police reports, they saw some red flags. One of them was the fact that when Suzanne called the sheriff on the phone, she said something different than what she called the dispatcher. I don't remember what they said
0: right after. Tears streamed down my cheeks. Dorothy does remember what she did next, though. She got in the car immediately and drove an hour to meet Vern's daughter. She told her cousin Shannon what she had learned and what the police had said. And we looked at each other and then cried for the next half hour.
2: I mean, there were tears streaming, and Shannon, between her sobs, just said, I always knew it was a cold-blooded murder. We kept crying, but there was some emotional relief, some kind of closure, even though we both wished my
0: Uncle Vernie were still alive. Dorothy Marsick's meeting with the Sheriff's Department brought her and Vern's daughter Shannon a sort of emotional closure, but it also left wide open the question of who killed Vern Stordock. Suzanne confessed, But the physical evidence didn't support her story. Then, years later, David confessed, too. None of that explains why Vern had to die. A kind man, as Dorothy remembers him, and a reliable one. Yes, it was true that David Briggs didn't get along with his stepfather sometimes. I mean, it was 1970. David was a shaggy-haired teenager. Vern was a clean-cut military type. Adolescence, rebellion, some tension was inevitable. David's friend Dale Indermule remembers that tension.
8: I do remember going over to his house. I remember LaBern coming home different times, and Dave was always just not upset. He says, oh, he's, he's freaking here now.
0: But David's friends also remember that Vern didn't just fight with a shaggy-haired kid. Kim Dury was another teenage boy around that time, another member of David's pack. And actually, he remembers Vern fighting with Suzanne. Um,
6: it seemed like they got along well until they got a few drinks, in them, and then they did not get along so well.
8: So, yeah. <laughs> whenever they came home after a few drinks, I just found a good reason.
6: It's well, time for me to go.
0: From the beginning, people around Vern had questioned his relationship with Suzanne, He had melted into her and become something else. Their obsessive relationship frightened Dorothy Marsick. In her late teens, Dorothy spent weekends with Vern and Suzanne.
2: We'd go for drives to see the countryside, and that's sometimes when I'd be sitting in the passenger seat. Vern would be driving, and this was days before bucket seats. Suzanne would be in the middle. There were no seatbelts. She'd have her left hand on his crutch, and, I mean, I'm so embarrassed because there was, you know, a 70-year-old girl from Rocky, Wisconsin, and nobody ever did anything like that.
0: After Vern's head was blown off, the police had their questions about that relationship, too. The night of the shooting, Sheriff Jack Leslie said he had seen one cigarette burn on Suzanne's back. Her lawyer pointed out scars he claimed were old burns. Later, Suzanne would tell conflicting stories about these burns. She said Vern burned her with a cigarette multiple times, at the bar, in the living room while they danced, in front of people, and alone. Sarah Kalin, the former cop, has also studied domestic abuse.
5: I'm always really uh, reluctant to deny the claims of anybody who purports to be a victim of domestic violence. I am a big believer in that, you know, it's important to believe victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. Kalin looked at the evidence of cigarette burns. But there are a number of inconsistencies that this apparently was some just weird habit that Vern had of putting out cigarettes on her back, you know, and the claim that she had something like three or four marks on her back. But when she was examined, there was only one. Um, And if memory serves from what was in the report, it was one that that could easily have been self-inflicted.
0: Kalen says when responding to potential domestic violence, figuring out who is abusing who is a really important and difficult question.
5: In an arrest situation, we use the term primary aggressor. The reason for this is that the toxicity can happen in a sort of feedback loop uh, or mutually combative physically or emotionally manner. In the heat of a moment during a situation that calls for an arrest, it's important for the officer to determine who is the initiator and most dangerous physically. But in the long term of a relationship, this can become gray when two people feed off of each other negatively. Think about Nicole Brown Simpson and O.J. Simpson. People in their lives often refer to her as, quote, pushing his buttons uh, or her throwing things, hitting him. But it's clear, you know, in hindsight, that the primary aggressor, the one at the root of the abuse, was O.J., In this case, it's important to try and understand who was that seed if we're going to point at one individual as being responsible for the breakdown and ultimate turn towards fatal violence.
0: If Suzanne had been abused, Kaylin says her son wouldn't have liked it. By all accounts, Suzanne and David had a close relationship. In the Oregon Mansion, police found a note in the kitchen after the murder. Well, it was one piece of paper with two notes on it. The first was from Suzanne to her son. Hey, Shag, if you go to work early, there are some donuts on the countertop. Help yourself within reason. Save a couple for me. And in smaller letters below, David had replied.
4: I've gone out goofing around with my girlfriend and some other guys. See you later. P.S. I left my car at home.
0: Years later, when David confessed to his friend Gary Grassman, he apparently offered a reason why.
8: Sue was being abused by Vern, and uh, he stepped in the middle of it. When he was drinking, he was physically abusive to Sue, and uh, he was not going to take it anymore.
0: Certainly several people reported animosity between Vern and David. Arlene Ace, who bowled with the Stordox and still lives in Oregon, says after the murder in that small town, people talked.
1: You know, I think the majority of people, if you would talk to anyone... You know, kind of felt that uh, Susie was taking the blame, that uh, David was in this fight with Vern over drugs, and um, he was the one who shot Vern, and Susie felt she could get off lighter, and she did. She was the one who said she did it.
0: In some circles, David had a reputation, including with his uncle Franklin.
1: Uh, David was a renegade kid. He always was.
6: And Vern was a narcotics officer.
0: In Oregon, Wisconsin, drugs weren't part of the scene. Arlene Ace says they were mysterious and too dangerous. Straight-backed Vern was the only person who had any contact with that world. And he was on the enforcement side.
1: And uh, you didn't want to get involved with that because that was serious. And Vern was part of that seriousness. Yeah. Yeah, and he kind of seemed like that. He, he had kind of, a, kind of a military style, like you thought that he, gradu- that he was in the service. You know, he had that kind of bearing.
0: So if David had a reputation, so did his stepfather. Vern Stordock had something else, a big brown briefcase, a library of drugs. The police found it that night in the bedroom where Vern's head was blown off. The contents of this case are… I'll let you hear the police inventory.
3: One vial labeled codeine. Essendrix K. Cigarette papers. Capala. Camposino marijuana seeds. One heroin outfit. LSD. Peyote.
0: It keeps going.
3: Morning Glory seeds. Marijuana-type cigarettes. Assorted pills. 144 red and black capsules. capsules. heroin. Cocaine. Hashish. Hashish. Marijuana. Heroin. Codeine.
0: And going.
3: Librick six syringe, or yeah. pot pipes.
0: What the heck was all of this doing in a nice, proper house in Oregon, Wisconsin?
5: The very first thing that jumped out at me when I saw that list of the suitcase was that this was some sort of a training, a training kit.
0: That's investigator Sarah Kalin, and the cops on scene after Vern was killed agreed with her. Police reports concluded that this briefcase was used by Vern as part of his work with the medical examiner's board and they turned the contents over to the Wisconsin Department of Justice.
5: One of the things that I think is possible about that case of drugs is that Vern was in fact, um, we know that he taught other, you know, policing agencies and AG's office people and it's possible that for, you know, continuing training which officers and and investigators go through all the time, he's got this sort of case of like, okay, this is what this one looks like, this is what this one looks like so that when when officers are making stops or when investigators are inventorying vehicles or homes or crime scenes that they kind of have some idea of what they're looking at.
0: It's weird that the briefcase was in the bedroom though. It suggests Vern wanted to keep a close eye on it, protect it, maybe from someone in his own house. Maybe you're thinking like the neighbors in Oregon did, that David saw this briefcase as a stash and he raided it. He was a 17-year-old boy. He bought beer off of hippies in Madison and kept his hair long. It was 1970. Dorothy Marsick doesn't think so.
2: Yeah, from everything I've discovered in my research, before the shooting, David didn't use drugs. His girlfriend at the time told police that he was really against drugs. He asked her if she'd ever tried marijuana, and she hadn't. But he told her if she ever did, he would have nothing to do with her.
0: Dorothy thinks if anyone was stealing the drugs in her uncle's briefcase, it was Suzanne. Two days after the murder, Suzanne's parents told the police they didn't understand why Vern, who worked for the state medical board and gave lectures on the dangers of drug abuse, would let his wife drink and take drugs together. They weren't crazy about Vern's drinking either, by the way. This is Dorothy's theory. Dorothy felt that urgency in her bones. She needed to keep going, to keep searching out the truth, whatever it was. So she decided to go to one of the people who had been in the house that night, who knew more than they had told anyone, who could explain things, like a briefcase full of drugs, and whether or not there were cigarette burns, and what had really happened. She went to the person she suspected had murdered her uncle, and she went to see David Briggs.
2: Yeah, I had to go there, because when Shannon called me that night, February 2014, she gave me their phone number, And she said, Dorothy, call them. We have to find out who shot my father. I said, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Tennessee. And she said, I can't ask you to do that, Dorothy. It's dangerous. I said, well, they haven't killed anybody in, what, 40 years? And she said, don't forget. One of those people in that house murdered my father.
0: And because of that, on a dark night in the eastern hills of Tennessee, she found herself alone with David on a driveway. Dark trees loomed around them, a chill hung in the air. David was no longer a shaggy-haired teen, but a grown man in his 60s. He was manic and energized, like the boy he had once been.
4: And I'm going to work on you, Dorothy. I'm going to talk to the Holy Spirit, and he'll come into your life and change everything for the better.
0: That night, Dorothy didn't get a confession. But in a bizarre twist, she found herself in a relationship. She and David talked on the phone. They texted. They even talked on Skype. And then there were the emails.
4: I am hoping that you and I get to become good friends.
0: Dorothy wrote back, Dave, I can't believe how many things you've been involved in. Computer, broker, and the publicity exec. Wow. And then your bodybuilding thing, too.
4: The picture that is posted with your Google accounts looks so businesslike. You have a resemblance to Vern in that picture. It's real nice. You look good.
0: Dorothy kept going. Dave, love the pics you sent.
4: Glad you liked it. Everyone told me this one makes me look a lot more friendly. Friendly is good. LOL. I like Skyping with pretty girls. You are even prettier in person, cousin, LOL. So I really hope you get to come visit. You're in our daily prayers here. I put your picture in my picture slideshow screensaver on my computer so I get daily reminders to keep you in prayer. Love ya. I'm not pushing for a romance or anything. I hope you don't mind. Let's go back and buy that house in Oregon and I can run my business out of the basement. Wouldn't that be great?
0: Skype sessions continued, the messages, and then, months later, on a phone call with Dorothy one night.
4: Why don't we buy the mansion in Oregon and get married?
0: Suddenly, Dorothy's cold case was getting hot. Next on manslaughter.
5: That David was involved, it's much more plausible that it was an ambush, and even in a short-term premeditation, for him to have used something that he could be safely out of the room.
0: Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franzblau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordock Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodau, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonzalez, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martin Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clear Cut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Harlan, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson.